This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 23rd of June, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wongal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, how the rejection of the 2020 deal with Pfizer is affecting the vaccination rollout. We look at what was achieved at the recent G7 meeting, lockdowns of journalism and free speech. And Australia has a new Deputy Prime Minister, and it's the same as the old one. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Scott Morrison's genealogist. It's been revealed that in July 2020, three months after the pandemic commenced, the Australian government rejected an offer from Pfizer to supply 40 million vaccination doses. And that offer also included a proposal to set up Australia as an international model for the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. Now, if that plan had been agreed to, Australia would have commenced its vaccination rollout in January this year. And even with the poor rollout strategy implemented by the federal government, the amount of people vaccinated by now would have been around 6 million or around 25% of the population. And if they had had a correct strategy of getting the states and territories to implement a Pfizer program, it would have been closer to 60%. And at that rate, Australia would have been a month away from achieving herd immunity. Pfizer is the most effective COVID vaccination available. Its efficacy rate is 95%, followed by Moderna at 94%, Gamalaya 91%, and all the way at the back of the queue is Johnson & Johnson at 68%, followed by AstraZeneca, bottom of the list, 67% efficacy. So the Australian government, on behalf of the public, they could have obtained the best COVID vaccine available. And they would have had to pay top dollar for it, of course, but they would have had received the first batches of the Pfizer vaccine, set up Australia as a model testing zone, and we'd be close to being fully vaccinated. But the government rejected this proposition. In his book, The Lucky Country, Donald Horn mentioned that Australia is managed by second-rate people. The ABC journalist, Laura Tingle, did write that we are actually being governed by idiots and fools, and this really is proof of those sentiments. A second-rate government that's provided the Australian public with a second-rate vaccination program. Watching the federal government get it wrong again and again and again. Now, of course, we were in fairly unprecedented times and mistakes were almost inevitably bound to happen. We've gone beyond mistakes into willful incompetence. Knocking back the Pfizer offer was rank stupidity. Why these people don't want to continually put Australia first is beyond me. Yes, it was expensive, but what's more expensive? Health or a sick population with a ruined economy? Uh, I saw an article the other day that showed, in I think The Economist, that showed that countries that had eliminated the virus have done better. Australia's economy is in dire straits. It is certainly not performing anywhere near as well as it can, and we keep making the wrong decisions. I'm not quite sure who it's benefiting. It seems to me that the policy is, let's not let the poor people get this. Let's not give this to everyone. Let's make sure that it is only the privileged and the elite that get it. Scott Morrison made a big deal of getting Pfizer early when Jacinda Ardern and Gladys Berejiklian said that they were happy to wait so other people who were in more need could get it sooner. And credit to both of them for that. It's a strange situation. Now, when you look at things that Dave Sharma 
declared that he had bought shares in the company that makes AstraZeneca after the decision had been made in Cabinet, but before it had been announced publicly, suggesting that this is blatant insider trading. We might start to see some of the picture of why they've pushed the AstraZeneca. We may not, too. Well, we do need to see the full details of what occurred in July 2020 and why those particular decisions were made. But it's obvious that the government tried to cut corners and cut costs for the vaccines and the delivery of these doses. But it it also has to be considered within the context of overall spending at that particular time. The government was given carte blanche to spend $303 billion on stimulus programs such as the JobKeeper program, health and community protection measures. And you're just wondering why on earth would you skimp on such an important issue? Now, the cost of the Pfizer vaccine, it's around $26 per dose and 40 million doses would have cost around $1 billion, probably more, and there'd be additional costs for the cold storage of the Pfizer vaccine. The overall cost has been estimated to have been pushing at around $4 billion. But in the context of having $303 billion available to spend with pretty much no questions asked, the government had a choice of going for the far superior Pfizer vaccine, but they chose the far cheaper and less effective AstraZeneca vaccine, which only costs $3 per dose. It seems to me that getting the country open again should have been the priority and that the $4 billion was worth it. Instead, that $4 billion will go into the pocket of some liberal donor, no doubt, or some useless inquiry that they've already, or some failed infrastructure project or it won't be well spent. We know this. I will be fair to the AstraZeneca dosage. The risk of blood clots was extremely low. The risk of fatality was extremely low. This is not, of course, to diminish those who actually did suffer the worst effects of AstraZeneca. And I suspect there's a little bit of panic involved in the the banning of it in other countries, etc. But Again, we're in unprecedented times and removing any fear, no matter how remote, I would have thought might have been a priority. We can all be wiser after the event, but there was quite a great deal of medical detail available about the viability of each of these vaccines that were being developed at that time. And and of course, there was a great deal of scepticism about a vaccine being developed at all, considering that a vaccine for any of the coronaviruses had never been developed in human history before. And the expectation that a vaccine to COVID-19 would be developed within a year was met with great disbelief. Now, Generally, you and I, not being virologists, we wouldn't have the detail about this, so we didn't know exactly what was going on. But you'd expect that at a government level, with their qualified chief medical officers and epidemiologists, they'd be able to keep on top of all of this. And and if you're a half-decent chief medical officer, you'd be saying, well, look, forget about the cost, although that has to be a consideration, of course you'd be thinking, well, let's go for the vaccine that looks like it's going to have the highest efficacy rate. And and if you're not too sure as the CMO, well, maybe you'd be looking at making deals with all of the providers, which the government did claim that that's what they were doing, but it seems like they weren't doing this. And you'd also expect that a government that kept on pushing that idea of a snapback to the economy and ideologically being committed to avoiding lockdowns and opening up the economy as soon as possible, you'd be accepting the Pfizer deal as soon as they came knocking on your door. 
Yeah, it shows their lack of foresight, their poor economic skills. The lockdown in Victoria cost $7 billion per week, didn't it? So for, for four days of Victorian lockdown, we'd have sorted out the country for good. I think probably heads need to roll, but they won't. So all of this new information about the July 2020 negotiations, which ended up being non-negotiations, they've only been revealed over the past few days, and many people in the field are quite angry about it. Dr Norman Swan, he's the ABC's health and medical journalist and health communicator. He's quite furious about it. And when Norman Swan is furious about a medical issue, it's generally not a good sign for the government. I've now had three sources telling me the same story, one including from the United States, of what happened with Pfizer last June. And if these three separate sources are right, what happened with Pfizer last June is that they wanted to make Australia an example to the world about how to roll out, a bit like Israel or other places. And they said, how much do you want and when do you want it? And on the 10th of July, there was a meeting. And what I'm told happened at that meeting was that there was an inexperienced person there with procurement. And they said, oh, they were pretty rude at the meeting. And they said, well, you're going to have to give us all your IP, which is you know, an amazing thing to have said, and, um, and started nickel and diming on the cost. And essentially, this, the, the conversation stopped. And then they came back in November at Commonwealth and only got 10 million doses. Uh, you, know, you know, they should have ordered 40 million so that we've got enough as a true backup. We didn't know what was going to go happening then. And I suspect that some of the experts that were advising them told them that the mRNA vaccine wasn't going to be any good. Don't bother. And, um, you know, I'd love to know what happened in that room. Those are the questions I'd like to ask, because this, the, you know, the, the, this has just um, maybe I've been doing this too long over the last year. And I'm getting a bit tired, but I'm just really angry. I mean, personally, I've, you know, I'm now crossing the line as a journalist, but just really angry. This the, the level of incompetence is breathtaking. And when you talk to people on the inside, they say it's worse than you imagine it from the outside. So there is quite a lot of outrage about this, and it's up to the government to provide more details about why these decisions were made, what were the health considerations, what were the financial considerations. But the bigger problem is that these are decisions that were made under the secrecy of the National Cabinet. But these are critical health and financial decisions, and the electorate has got the right to know why these particular decisions were made, which on the surface, they don't seem to have been made in the public interest. The government has been playing politics. Now, the politics of such a thing should be allaying fear, spreading calm, ensuring that everyone is communicated with, working with oppositions to make sure that the opposition are up to date so that their local members can spread the word that this is being run as well as possible, being open to fair and reasonable debate and fair and reasonable criticism. Instead, the politics has been things like, whatever the Labor states are doing, we will do the opposite. We will help the Liberal states before the... And it's gone back to you know, second year undergraduate university politics, because that's all the government knows how to do. And now they're in government, they can do it from a advantage position, but it's not in the country's best interest. And it's also a case with this government that they seem to know the costs of everything, but the yeah. value of nothing. And we see it time and time and again. We saw it happening with the NBN. The idea being that you do it once and you do it properly, but they didn't want to do that. They wanted to skimp and save. 
not do it properly. And eight years later, the NBN will need to go into a second stage of development to bring it up to scratch. And the same process, exactly the same process, is happening with the vaccination rollout. They backed the wrong horse in this case, and they, they should have been hedging their bets and backing all the horses in the race. And they simply made the wrong decision, and there's no follow-up. You can't. There's no accountability. There's no recourse now. It's too late. You can't go back and change your mind about these types of bad decisions. And to get themselves out of the hole of incompetence, they make more political decisions to spin their way out of a difficult position. And that brings up another issue, of course, the... You know, this is a government that keeps making the big mistakes on the big issues. And you just wonder how many more mistakes will they be allowed to make by the electorate? It won't be long, I think. And I'm probably talking in galactic terms here, 10 years. <laughs> but it, it won't be long before a soft press isn't going to work for them anymore. It may have already started. And I think there's going to be a lot of anger as people realise they've been dudded again. I think there's going to be a lot of electoral blowback. Uh, it might not be the next election, but certainly the time will come where it, the party will suffer the same results federally as it did in Western Australia. I think, too, that members of the Liberal Party, and I don't mean parliamentary members, but I mean the decent, hardworking ideologues who run the party will start to realise that electoral victories aren't much if you're not achieving anything. And I think this might come into factor and I think there's going to be some very interesting pre-selection uh, battles over the next electoral cycle. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at what was achieved at the recent G7 meeting. Scott Morrison has returned from the G7 meeting in Cornwall and we do have to remind everyone that Australia was there only as an observer, even though the media made it seem like Morrison was the most important person on the stage and was actually running the show. But despite our cynicism, we have to have a good look at what was achieved during this trip. Morrison held a hastily arranged trilateral meeting with US President Joe Biden and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but this seemed to be more like a fireside chat and a photo opportunity rather than anything substantial. He did also arrange a loosely defined free trade agreement with the United Kingdom, where, as far as we can tell, Australia will trade Vegemite in exchange for Marmite. Tim Tams will be exchanged for penguin biscuits. Now, I don't know about you, David, but Tim Tam biscuits and penguin biscuits seem to be pretty much the same, and I prefer Vegemite over Marmite any day of the week. Morrison also organised a few side trips to a British jail, a, a church and local pubs to explore his convict heritage and engage in what Finance Minister Simon Birmingham described as soft diplomacy. I can think of a few other ways to engage in soft diplomacy, but what exactly was the point of Australia's attendance at the G7 meeting? It was an odd one. 
the meeting with Biden, I should go back even further. Firstly, his plane gets stopped from landing due to fog. Now, it was the last one in, and the fog may have settled in just after all the other planes got in. But as far as I can tell, no other world leader's plane was delayed through fog. He was meant to have a meeting with the Canadian entourage, and they gave him the wrong address accidentally, allegedly. The Canadian public service is actually an extremely efficient and effective public service. I wonder if he got the wrong address, if he misread the address, or his staff misread the address, or if there was something else going on. He was meant to have a one-on-one meeting with Joe Biden, which Boris Johnson was then put into. I've seen a couple of theories on this. One is that Biden wanted a meeting with a witness so that Morrison couldn't misrepresent what was decided in the meeting. I don't know that Scott Morrison ranks that highly on Joe Biden's notice scale, if that makes sense. The other theory I read was that he just wanted to get the two buffoons out of the way together in one 20-minute meeting and then go on to the more substantial people with actual things to say. I don't know. And of course, an American president's schedule changes at the drop of a hat. There's all types of internal, domestic and foreign crises that means that schedules change. But traditionally, since about 1917 or 1919, really, the American president and the Australian prime minister have generally made time for each other. And Australia ranks fairly high relatively in the diplomatic movements of America. When I say fairly high, somewhere in the top 20 or 25, I think. Certainly, we should rank higher than places like North Korea and other places like that. But of course, things can happen. So that meeting was not terribly successful. The trade agreement is only an agreement to reach a trade agreement. This will take 15 to 20 years to hammer out. Once the makers of Marmite and Vegemite get involved and figures get pushed around, deals will slow down. So we don't want to push too many conspiracy ideas around the place, but you know it just seems a little bit odd that a fog caused Scott Morrison to not attend the beginning parts of the G7 meeting, whereas for all of the other leaders at the, at the G7 meeting, they made it all through. So who knows what was going on there? But there was also discussion that Joe Biden didn't actually want a formal bilateral meeting with Scott Morrison because he supported Donald Trump during his US visit in 2019. And he actually failed to say anything about the uprising at Capitol Hill in January 2021 as well. So there's also the other big factor for Joe Biden that Joe Biden has got a big push for an international agreement on carbon reduction and environmental policies. And it's the, the total antithesis of what Scott Morrison is pushing at the moment as well. And this idea that Joe Biden would have wanted a witness in the in the room, that's possibly the case as well. But you know, there's so many ways that we can look at it. Maybe because Scott Morrison isn't actually part, or Australia isn't part of the G7 meeting, why was he going to waste time holding a, a meeting with such a person if they're not a member of the G7? There's other forums that they can engage in, and this probably wasn't one of them. Mm. Again, I think I mentioned this last podcast. When Julia Gillard was there, she was invited to join committee. She spent a lot of time talking to other world leaders, other observers. The self-diplomacy of which Simon Birmingham bragged was on full display with Julia Gillard. It was not with Scott Morrison. He spent a lot of time 
wandering around, I think, hoping to talk to anybody. And tiny things like you got a 20-minute meeting with Boris Johnson and the president presented as massive victories. But it was a failure. Australia came out with a better trade deal with Britain potentially, uh, let's be fair, but Britain's in such a weak bargaining position after Brexit that we'd be surprised. I think even Scott Morrison could come out the better end of a deal with Britain. But apart from that, that and that didn't need to happen at the G7. And meetings of this nature, they are good opportunities to engage in dialogue, but it seemed like Scott Morrison wanted everything on his own terms as far as climate change and carbon reduction issues were concerned, but it also gave him an opportunity to talk about technology, not taxes. That's a a new three-word slogan that the coalition is pushing through, and it's also a photo opportunity with world leaders. But the other factor that we have to take into account with these sort of meetings is that it's not just country to country or meetings between a particular representative government and another representative government. It's also the personalities of those leaders as well. So it's a little bit like a a party or a gathering that you go to, a social engagement where you think, oh, look, I'm going to stay away from that person because I don't particularly like that person. And if you do get on with them personally, well, you tend to gravitate towards them and hang out with them. So it's a little bit like that with these sort of meetings. They can be good things, but it's also based on the personalities that exist there. And there were other things that came out of this G7 gathering. There were also agreements for cooperation on hydrogen. But these types of agreements, they're hardly worth the pen and paper that they're created with. And it is generally better to have these agreements than to not have them at all but they're almost like agreements to agree to consider some issue at some point in the faraway future and well it's a question of whether that is valuable or not but it seems like in this particular case it's more about the photo opportunity rather than anything of great substance yeah it's easy to sort of say oh you know and i'm sure it was a lovely experience meeting these people and, and, you know, getting handshake deals and even signing some bits of paper. But net balance, I don't know that Australia's interests were progressed very much outside of the agreement to maybe do a trade deal that'll take 15 years, to trade one identical commodity for another identical commodity. I think we have to look at what's happening at home to see if we can understand as to why Scott Morrison would travel to Britain at a time too, which we haven't mentioned yet, where there are still at least 20,000 Australians stranded overseas who can't get home. A lot of Australians who want to, no, I won't say want to, but who would love to be able to leave the country to visit family, to visit new grandchildren, to visit brothers and sisters, to catch up with friends, to do business, to go to funerals. There's all types of valid reasons to be able to leave the country, yet at the moment, for valid reasons, it's very hard to. Yet Morrison can take 40 people to a meeting that became very quickly apparent he probably wasn't wanted at and didn't need to be at. So it is important to have these critical meetings and you do have to make allowances for national leaders travelling during a pandemic and it's also important for leaders to have their face-to-face meetings. But other technology could have been deployed in this case, such as teleconferencing and especially for a national leader who's not actually a member of the G7. And some of this imagery didn't play out so well locally. It's not a good look to have your Prime Minister jetting all around the world, doing side trips to local pubs and researching family history. 
when at the same time it's difficult for Australian citizens living overseas to come home, or in the case of Australian citizens living in India, banned from returning home or slapped with jail time and a massive fine if they made the attempt to come home. So there is a schism between Morrison's actions and what everyone else is allowed to do. It's insane. And then to try and make a private business of going to visit his ancestral home in Cornwall. Now, I know the American president will make a big deal of going to Ireland and chasing up his uh, ancestral roots, but that plays to particular symbolism and semiotics in America uh, and the huge Irish population of America, the, the very popular notion of a united Ireland, I know there's a Cornwall separatist movement, and it's very important to those who are involved with it, but I'm not sure that outside of England it carries very much weight for people who aren't of Cornish stock. And there's no symbolism in Australia. He's trying to make a big deal out of ancestors being convicts on the First Fleet. I'd be very careful if I was him about aligning himself with any kind of convict at the moment. That's going to come back to bite him, possibly. I'm not quite sure who's advising him on this stuff. Were he to have, you know, five or six straight days of endless grueling meetings, and then he took the seventh day to slip up privately to have a look around, you might think, yeah, okay, look, fair enough. But they made a big play of it, which I don't know who thought this would be a good idea. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the battle between the politician and the comedian goes up a level, but it's also a battle between old and new media. a couple of other issues that are coming up. The dispute between the New South Wales Nationals leader, John Barillaro, and Friendly Geordies has gone up a notch with his producer, Christo Lanka. He was actually arrested under the anti-terrorism laws through the Fixated Persons Investigation Unit. Now, this unit wasn't designed for this sort of activity. It was set up after the Lint Cafe siege in 2014. Now, that was a campaign of absolute fear and terror instigated by a man Monis, but that sort of terrorised Sydney for that entire day and a half that that went on for. But arresting a prankster comedian and journalist within this legislation just seems to be total overreach. Part of the occupational hazard of any public figure, particularly politicians, is that you'll be laughed at. David Lee Roth, the lead singer of uh, Van Halen, said something along the lines of, if you stick your head above the crowd, someone will chuck a rock at it. And that's true. And as as a politician, you're going to be lampooned, parodied, made fun of, jokes told about you. Most of the jokes are probably appalling and inappropriate. Some of them are very funny. Some of them get moved on from people to people to people. 
There was a French comedian who said the trouble with most political jokes is that they get elected. I don't think he'd seen Australia at that point. (laughs) But comedy is a part of it. I remember seeing both Hillary Clinton and John McCain on the David Letterman show going on and doing a two-minute stand-up routine each on different nights, ripping into Letterman because Letterman had spent months and months ripping into them. And they laughed along and they made callbacks to some of the jokes that uh, Letterman had made about them and the running jokes. And it showed that they were good sports about it. If you can't take it, don't dish it out. And, you know, if it gets dished out onto you, either give it back or take it well. Nobody likes a person with no sense of humour about themselves. Nobody likes to be made fun of or humiliated or joked about or whatever. But these are politicians. These are public figures. And that comes with the terrain. And you've got to develop a thick skin. And if you're not prepared to put up with that sort of stuff, well, no one's forcing John Barillaro to go into public life. No one's forcing any politician to go into public life. And that's not to say that I condone these sort of behaviours or, or actions, but that's just part of the territory. And there's also the other factor that John Barillaro has been claiming that these people are not journalists. Now, whether or not Lanker or Friendly Geordies is perceived as a journalist or not, no one should be arrested in this particular way or for the allegations that have been made against them. This is police state activity, plainclothes police removing a person from their home on pretty much trumped-up charges. It's Kafkaesque, Gestapo, fascist type of behaviour. And the other point that we do need to make is there hasn't been much support coming in from mainstream journalists who have actually, over the past year or so, they've actually come out to attack friendly Geordies and Christo for not engaging in proper journalism, whatever that means. And so it seems that mainstream journalism overall or the mainstream media seems to be okay with all of this. Now, they have reported these events. There's no question about that. But they just seem to be hostile to new modes or unconventional styles of journalism. So I'm not sure what they think about you and me, David. But it's also the the case that journalism has moved on from that old idea of reporters wearing braces, keeping a pencil and paper in their top pocket, listening into a crackling CB radio to pick up the police rounds and using typewriters. Journalism is a whole range of different things now. And, but the, the mainstream media, the traditional media, seems to be quite unaware of this. They're reluctant to pick up on new forms of journalism. And to me, it's, it's also a question of, the, of that battle between legacy media and new media reporting as well. Yeah, I, the old media is dying in terms of the way that good journalism is presented Television ratings have been dispersed amongst more channels than the five traditional that we had in Australia. There's now dozens, if not hundreds, of competition. You can stream everything, um, and there are at least six streaming services that you can subscribe to. There's pay TV, and I know that pay TV is in a lot of, or seems to be in a lot of trouble in that people trying to leave are getting exceptionally good deals to try and stay on. And in fact, pay TV is trying to take over regional news uh, by offering Sky News to certain regional stations with the assumption that the local news will close down. Newspapers are a dying media. And I think new forms of media like podcasts, like independent media, and Australia is chock full with really excellent independent media. We're we're in that transition period. And I've got to say that while I understand that, I know that there are exceptions that there are mainstream journalists who 
actually support independent media and take it seriously. A lot don't, and they don't understand it. Well, whether it's mainstream or independent media, it doesn't really matter. What we do need to see is good quality journalism across the board, and much of the mainstream media is really lacking in that area at the moment. But it it also shouldn't matter whether it's a mainstream journalist or an independent journalist. What what we do have here is one journalist being arrested and the other one sued for defamation. And I'm not suggesting that journalists should be immune from the law, but these are trumped up and manufactured charges. And it's not a good look for any form of journalism and it's not a good look for the state of New South Wales either. And now for something completely different. There was that quote before that I mentioned, we are actually governed by fools and idiots. And speaking of which, Barnaby Joyce has returned to the leadership of the National Party, which means that he is the Deputy Prime Minister. So in my opinion, he's corrupt, he's a sexual harasser, womanizer, philanderer, drunk, and a general buffoon. And this is indicative of the poor state of conservative politics in Australia. Now, Barnaby Joyce, he was the leader of the National Party up until 2018. He was forced to resign because of the sexual harassment allegations that were made about him, his womanising, his philandering, his drunkenness, And it's, it's back to the future, but it's not a very good-looking future. So we also have to consider, well, Barnaby Joyce is now back as the leader of the National Party, Deputy Prime Minister. What does this actually mean for the federal government and the coalition? Sky News was bragging that this meant big trouble for Scott Morrison. I'm not quite sure how, as I imagine Barnaby and Morrison are far more aligned in their views of things than any other potential leader, not Michael McCormack. Also, how important is the National Party to the coalition? At the, actually, at the moment, it's very important because it's how they hold their one-seat majority. It would be nice if... Barnaby had used his three years in the wilderness to have sobered up, engaged in frank and sober reflection, to have matured, to have calmed down, and to have shown a willingness to grow into the role. It's possible, I guess, but from the few public statements he's made since he went back to the backbencher, he seems to have become a little bit more unhinged and a little bit more insane. Time will tell. Well, many in the media have said that Barnaby Joyce is is an excellent retail politician. But as far as I'm concerned, the, the worst sort of politician is the retail politician because they'll tell people exactly what they want to hear rather than exactly what needs to be done. And it's it's populist garbage. It's usually... Well, essentially, this whole retail politics process is the reason why we are at the state where we are at the moment, where we've got a government that's been in office since 2013, disaster after disaster, incompetence after incompetence, corruption after corruption. And you know, maybe electorally, this is what works in Australia at the moment, where we have a government that can produce as many disasters as they want to, and they keep getting popular support and they keep getting re-elected. So perhaps Barnaby Joyce, he is a retail politician, there's no question about that. It seems like it's the, the type of leadership that Australia prefers at the moment. I think the perception is that. It'll, again, it'll be interesting. When will the patience of the Australian public wear out for the blatant corruption? Yeah, Barnaby will do things like, I'm doing this to keep it off the greenies. Aren't greenies Australian citizens too? What does that mean? Is a million fish dead in the Menindee River 
good economic policy or good environmental policy is a man who has clearly been drunk in parliament. Can we trust his judgment? And of course, is a man who launches a leadership spill while the prime minister is out of the country, meaning that technically we had no prime minister for two hours. Very selfish, very poorly thought through, and he only wins by one to three votes, depending on the count. Well, whatever the numbers were, Lockie, whether it was close or or not, the upshot is that Barnaby Joyce is now the leader of the National Party, is also the Deputy Prime Minister. You and I predicted that in 2018, like that was the end of Barnaby Joyce, he'd never be coming back again, and he's proven us wrong. If he's still there in 12 months, I might rethink that, but we'll see, yeah. Well, you know, the one good thing to come out of this is that both Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce will be able to shear a sheep during the next federal election campaign. So that's something that we should be looking really forward to. Now, there's also been another COVID outbreak in Sydney, but it's all okay, David, because Gladys is in love again with her lawyer. That's Arthur Moses, and he represented her at the hearings at the Independent Commission for Corruption last year. This is all so tacky. It's so Sydney. It's it's also so Daily Telegraph-like to cover over all of the corruptions and incompetence of a Premier and a New South Wales government with this kind of dross. If Gladys Berejiklian was a Labor woman leader, like she would have been slut-shamed out of office by now. Yeah. It, it, and it's, again... I keep getting hammered for this, but New South Wales hasn't really dealt with the pandemic very well. Now, I will be fair that a lot of the fault has come from mismanagement from the federal level. But when you look at testing rates, which are historically low, the last week was better. And even Brad Hazard said we need 40,000 to be sure. Um, He didn't say that when there was a Barala outbreak, but when you get to safe liberal seats, he gets very, or or swinging seats, he gets very worried. And I think it shows a lot for his priorities. We've run a very risky strategy, I think, and it's paid off so far, I'll be fair, but luck runs out and the longer you stretch it, the harder it runs out. Well, the other factor is that we also want, we don't want COVID outbreaks anywhere across no. Australia. We, well, we wouldn't want them anywhere in the world. But no. within Australia, if they do happen, well, it's best that the respective health departments and the respective governments just keep a lid on it and try and eradicate the issue as quickly as possible. But it just gets back to the way that these issues are reported. The reporting in Sydney and Melbourne has been diametrically opposite to each other. And the Melbourne and Sydney outbreaks have roughly occurred around the same time. The reporting in Sydney from the media has been sort of matter of fact. This is what's happened. And, oh, you know, it's the poor New South Wales government dealing with a very difficult situation. Whereas in Melbourne, it's a total disaster. It's the fault of an incompetent Labor government. And you keep hearing these headlines time and time and again. You just keep hearing how bad the Labor government is. If there's a COVID outbreak in Melbourne, it's all the fault of a Labor government. If there's a COVID outbreak in Sydney, well, oh, well, this is just an issue that's arisen and... It's okay because we've got a gold standard New South Wales government looking after things and everything's fine. And by the way, Gladys is in love again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nobody's business who Gladys is going out with till it impacts on public money or public decisions. The Daryl Maguire case was very much in the public interest. This one is in terms of how she met him and who he is. 
But beyond that, there's very little interest and shouldn't be front page news. There's an appalling type of sexism with Gladys anyway in that, you know, she's found love at last as if a presumably independent woman needs love. And I've heard talkback radio call her darling and sweetheart. I don't think I'll get any women disagreeing with this, but if you do, please let us know. It seemed icky to me to call the Premier darling or sweetheart, even if I don't like the Premier. (laughs) Well, let's start calling Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce sweethearts and see how far we get with that. So with the COVID outbreaks, they're still happening around the country. Melbourne does have its outbreak under control, recording zero cases today and removing restrictions later on tonight. Sydney case numbers are rising in the eastern suburbs. 16 new cases were recorded today and it's up to 31 cases in the Bondi cluster. And, you know, of course we want the New South Wales government to manage these outbreaks effectively and get it down to zero. But we also want fair reporting as well. The New South Wales government's handling of the COVID-19, it's not the gold standard that the media keeps telling us. And the Victoria government's management is nowhere near as bad as we've been told it is. If both got equal treatment in the media, and it's that fixation that the right-wing media have on a person, they keep calling for Dan Andrews to resign. Dan Andrews has been on sick leave. He slipped over and hurt his back. And I know... There's a lot of people out there who think he was beaten up by a prominent Melbourne businessman or business interests or what have you. But the story has been remarkably consistent that he slipped on some wet steps and hurt himself pretty badly. I don't think he's due back to work yet. For him to resign during his sick leave, the acting premier doesn't seem to get the level of hatred that Dan Andrews gets. I think it's to do with his fairly unshakable and extraordinary popularity. I think he's got a 78 to 80% popularity rating in Victoria. The 20% who don't like him really, really, really don't like him. Let's be fair. On both sides of politics, you'll always get around 20% of people that absolutely detest who the leader is. It's just that question about why does the 20% of the population that dislikes the Labor Party or dislikes the Labor leader, why do they get so much prominence within the media? Why do we hear so much about gym owners or cafe owners as if they're the only people that drive the Australian economy? Yeah, we never hear from healthcare workers or nursing care people who really need to be ultra, ultra cautious and that if society shuts down, it makes their job just a little bit easier. It's insane. And of course, there's a reluctance for government to cover the cost of lockdown as well. Whereas I think if you lock down, the government should cover the cost somehow. You don't have to, if they're really that opposed to putting money directly into people's pockets so that they can spend it as they see fit. There's certainly ways that government can alleviate the worry, particularly now we have a very high unemployment rate. One of the big accounting firms estimates it at 10.1%. And of course, a very high underemployment rate and a lot of casual work. There's ways around it instead of just saying, oh, we're not locking down because it's much more important that the economy works. What the pandemic showed us is that the economy isn't as important as we thought it was. It's good to have work, it's good to have money, it's good to work for money, but there are some things that are more important. And I think that we've been shown that in very many, many ways. 
That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.